Good evening everybody and welcome to Let's Talk Assassin's Creed, your number one podcast for all things Assassin's Creed. Good evening everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Assassin's Creed. Normally at this point I would tell you the episode number, but this week I can't do that because we don't exactly know yet when this episode will be released. We're recording on the 8th of March and this episode will probably be published around the middle of March, but we'll keep you updated on Twitter of course. Usually I would also introduce the topic and the guest for this episode, but I'm not going to do that this time, and, and here's why. If you've been listening for a while, you will know that I'm very much the uh, the new boy here. It was just three years ago last week when I first uh, played an Assassin's Creed game, when I uh, started Odyssey and uh, completed the Battle of Thermopylae as Leonidas. Um, however, Declan, our dear lead host, is uh, very much the OG fan. He's been playing these games since 2007 uh, with Assassin's Creed 1, so... It's only right that, uh, Declan, you have the honour of introducing this week's special guest. Every time you say 2007, I realise 15 years playing a franchise makes me sound old. You are getting old, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, I have the great pleasure of bringing somebody on board who I've always wanted to bring on board, Darby McDevitt. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> you think you're old. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. So we thought um, we'd uh, start the show. We we have, we have some more kind of serious, you know, uh, franchise and story questions, but we thought we'd start with a bit of fun. We thought we'd start with a little bit of, uh, shall we say, speed dating or icebreaker questions. So very fast, very short. Uh, let's see if we can do, I don't know, what do you reckon, Declan, 15 questions in a, in a minute or two minutes? Let's see how we do. 15 in a minute is possible. All right. Do you want to get us started, Declan? <laughs> Okay, uh, first question. Tea or coffee? Coffee. What was the last book you read or what book are you currently reading? <laughs> that would probably uh, break my NDA, actually. Ooh, uh, <laughs> you have to tell us. I'm into yeah, the rules yeah, of the yeah. podcast. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, no. Uh, 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 mm. What did I... Goodness. Damn it. I wish I'd saved this question up for later yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, because everything I've been reading literally for probably a, a year has is you know is for future future Some, projects. All right. So I can't. All right. All right. So if I can go all the way back, it probably either a Cormac McCarthy novel. Like I, I love Cormac McCarthy, but I've already done all I've already read all his big ones, like Blood Meridian and and the the border trilogy so i'm like sweeping up all the other ones like so maybe like outer dark or or sutri probably sutri uh good old you know american gothic kind of stuff ah okay okay declan is very much the reader of the two of us so <laughs> some good stuff for your list there declan once i finish my stephen king collection i might look into it <laughs> Yeah, do read blood meridian i mean you've seen no country for old men and the road probably he wrote both those but Blood Meridian is the book to, to, to attempt. I may look into this for sure. <laughs> so um, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? I just like plain vanilla. It's, it's, always, been, it's always been the best. Classic. Uh, what was the last TV show that you binge watched? Uh, oh, actually Succession. Just finished it two nights ago. With good old Brian Cox and... Uh, and his and his family. Uh, yep, yep. Um, what's your most prized possession and why? Um, I have a 
I have a, 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 a GNL Stratocaster that I bought when I learned to play guitar almost 30 years ago. And it's, it's a really heavy Strat, and I love it, and I played a lot of shows with it, and I composed a lot of music on it. It doesn't get enough love anymore, but uh, it's because uh, I love, I'm a musician in my spare time, so that's, uh, that's something that's been with me for a long time. Very good. We, we may come to that very, very shortly. Um, are there any pets in the McDevitt family household? No, I've always been a dog person, but since I left uh, my parents' house in Spokane, Washington, uh, I have never owned a dog, but I've always wanted to. So when if I ever get a yard at some point, because I live in Little Italy in Montreal, so there's no yards. <laughs> it's only, you know, porches and decks, um, gotcha. but I'd love a dog. Good choice. Good choice. <laughs> Dogs are cute. We've ever said dogs. German, she- German shepherds. I had a lot of German shepherds in my family. Ah, big dogs. My, my yeah. dog is so small. He would be about the size of a tail yeah. of a German shepherd. So yes, yes. Um, favorite musician slash band. Uh, my, the, the, a lot. Prince is a huge one. Cause he's the first uh, purple rain is the first album I listened to when I was about nine. And I thought, Oh, this is like, this is art. This is something special. So Prince is huge for me. Um, another one is um, Talk Talk, um, especially Mark Hollis as a musician and composer and Talk Talk's later albums like Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock and Mark Hollis's solo record are super important to me um, as they're just so inspiring as, as like, well, I guess the genre is post-rock, but they're just like the most inventive albums uh I've ever heard. So I say Prince and Talk Talk. All right. Got some got some listening for Spotify when we when we finish <laughs> recording today. That's cool. Um, what was your first paying job? Uh, I was, I think my dad knew a guy who worked at a Mercedes dealer in downtown Spokane and they they needed a janitor, a night janitor. So I, I think 16 years old, I was a janitor at a Mercedes dealer. <laughs> and the only fun part of the job was that I got to, I'd have to come in on Saturdays and drive all the cars that were in the shop and drive them off the lot, park them elsewhere. So I had could scrub the whole sh- floor and then bring them back. So I got to drive a bunch of Mercedes. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. Nice. Deathly afraid of doing it, damaging them, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. So janitor at a Mercedes dealer. Very good. So I think we just got over the minute. So that's <laughs> uh, okay. We can ask one more and then go into some nice juicy questions. Let's do it. So I think I'm gonna pick random one from uh, this list. Um, what is a skill that you would like to learn? <laughs> I, sh- I should say learning to speak French better because I've been in Montreal ten years and I my French is pretty appalling, but. Um... What's a, what's a, what's another that wouldn't embarrass me? Um, we'll, we'll edit that bit out. Don't worry. We, no, we no, no, no one will hear this. <laughs> no, leave it in. Um, hmm. I'd, I, I'd actually like to be a much better piano player. I've, uh, it's, uh, since I love music so much, I, I took music lessons when I was a kid, but then I quit because I wasn't sure what they were for. But then when I fell in love with music, like listening to Beatles records and, and such, then I was like, oh, yes, this is great. But I played guitar. And so by the time I started noodling on pianos, 
I lost the ability to like have any kind of dexterity in my fingers. So I'm not a good piano player at all, but I would love to be much better. Very good. Do you play any instruments, Declan? I, I can be completely honest. I don't even play the gramophone. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I try. Does anyone anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Got some wax cylinders somewhere. I'm sure I can bust out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Declan, what about you? Um, I tried guitar, then I realized that the guitar that my father gave me was like broken, so I couldn't oh. play it. So <laughs> I tried piano and realized I just like the noises the black keys make. So <laughs> that's the limit of my musical talent. Well, you can play blue. You can play blues with those keys. That's a pentatonic scale. So <laughs> there you go. That's what you, you can do. The intro for us in in, in the future, Declan. Yeah. I'd have to convince my girlfriend to let me drag a piano into the house, but we've got a small house. I'm not sure a piano could fit. Ah, uh, yeah, that could be tricky. Yeah, maybe a baby grand instead of a grand, you know. I could try this. <laughs> so, uh, should we... Uh, that concludes the uh, the speed dating section, should we say. Uh, yeah. Thanks very much, Darby. That was a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we might start with some, some of the more uh, Assassin's Creed-specific questions. Um... So I'll get us started. Uh, you returned to Ubisoft um, last October after some time away. Yep. And while you were away, um, Ubisoft published a press release telling us that they've been kind of a, a reorganization <clears throat> of the studios and the sort of future development, should we say, um, of the Assassin's Creed franchise. And what I was wondering was, how was your first day back? Was it a case of, welcome back, Mr. McDevitt, we've kept your desk here for you or, or with the reorganization? Did it feel like you were joining a... A brand new team, and and what can fan? What will fans get from this reorganization? Uh, what does it mean for future content? I mean, the first day back was great, and everyone, I, you know, I walked back into a team that I knew almost everybody, and even for, you know some people from maybe other projects come to join the family, the Assassin's Creed family. So people even that I knew from other teams as well. Um, but it, it's been great, and it's uh, it's just. Uh, the time away was actually in some ways for me to sort of uh, ass assess what I wanted to do. And um, and I, I used the time away wisely to work on some of my own things. Um, um, but I mean, I'm, I'm just walking into uh, back into a, a, an organization and a team that really knows, has a clear idea of what they want to do and has a lot of exciting things they want to do and a lot of things that I've been excited about for many, many years. Um, so actually, I'm actually more excited now than I've been in a long time. Um, so I, I kind of have to that leave is, it at that. That is great. <laughs> that alone. I know you can't say too much. And we, I just want to say to people listening, look, you know, Darby's a professional. I'm sure he's got a watertight NDA and he's not going <laughs> to ruin, you know, the work that, that many hundreds or thousands of people are working on. So we are not going to be asking and wasting time on questions like tell us what the next game is that's silly but we do appreciate that you know you're trying to tell us as much as you can without um <laughs> spoiling anything so appreciate that yeah yeah it's it, i'm that it, i think i stopped there <laughs> <laughs> understood over to you Declan. <laughs> so <clears throat> this wasn't technically on the list but i am actually quite curious about now it's in my head you helped write valhalla and valhalla is amazing but one of the questions I really want to ask is, do you, how much do you love mythology and weaving it into a, the Assassin's Creed universe? Because <laughs> I can't I get enough you, of it. Do you know what, mate? I knew you were going to throw a mythology question in there. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh -huh. uh, 
That's a well. That's a that's a big question. I could, I could talk a long time about it. I think the um, there's a couple different um, pathways I could go with this. One is that my personal uh, the the thing that I personally love the most about Assassin's Creed is history and the idea of hidden history and you know the Assassin Templar conflict. Um, and I and and it's been if you look back at a that the that the games that I've worked on personally, really the only one I got to work on where it was just history and assassins versus Templars is Revelations, um, if you count the AAA games. Since then, it's been either you know a pirate or kind of a proto assassin. I worked on Origins for a long time, and Valhalla, it's Vikings. So it's actually been a long time since I just really got into the meat of that you know assassin Templar conflict. Um, plus history. Each game is like layered on new things. Um, and when we when we kind of went in with Origins, you know, it's impossible to talk about ancient Egypt without thinking about their mythology. And same goes with ancient Greece. I didn't work on Odyssey. And same goes with uh, the Viking Age and the Viking, that ethos. Norse mythology is incredibly important. So I think with this... The, the previous three games, it was just that the teams, while working on history, realized that a huge part of their history is also the mythology. And, and you could have done it in a way where you just showed the mythology as a part of daily life. But I think all the creative teams were said like, well, let's bring that mythology to life a little bit. And I know that fans have di- varying degrees of, you know, um, satisfaction with how we handled that in each game. Um, but it was always going to be something you had to address, right? You can't do Vikings without at least um, talking and immersing yourself, if not in the actual mythology, the pra- the religious practice, right? And same, same goes for um, Origins. Um, you, you want... I, I, I guess the way I'd say it is, in some sense, you want to, if you're living in somebody's memories, you want to also access some kind of subjective experience of what, what it was like to be that person. So with Bayek, what is it like to actually believe in Egyptian gods? And there's a couple of different ways I guess you could do that. Same went for Eivor and, and Valhalla. What is it like to walk around believing that these gods have influence on your life? And so in some sense, it's it's important to make the player feel that um you know it could have been just them like you know rubbing hammers of thor and saying "Mm, thor protect me or you can literally like you know play through a sequence where you are you know running alongside thor um these are the creative questions we ask ourselves whenever we start a new project and we think okay how best to do that but i think that the approach will always come from the specific history the specific period of history that you're tackling um so if you know if if we were to do that i always this is something i always use for jokes i've said this many times but if if i were to do a period of history that i really like which is like um the birth of hip-hop in new york in the 1970s right awesome time period i don't think we'd be having a lot of you know fantasy mythology in that time period because that's not really what's evocative of that time period. It would be something completely different. You'd have to have some sort of Assassin Templar conflict and that matched the the vibe of the era. 
um, if that makes sense. It, it does. Although, do you yeah. know what? As soon as you said 70s hip hop, um, it just, and I know it's totally different. Well, not totally. It's, it's a different time period and different genre, but I'm immediately reminded of all those people that are still desperate for jazz age junkies that we saw in the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Unity yeah. loading screen. One day we want jazz age yeah. junkies as a uh, as a playable sequence. Yes. Yeah. That's that's my fault too. I, I wrote that whole, uh, I, des- ah. I, de- I, des- I designed that whole page in, in Unity. So. Ah. So I don't know. I don't know. In the long run, did I did I cause more heartache than uh, amusement? Because so many people wanted to want each of those to be real games. But (laughs) actually, some of them are right. Some of them are like. Yeah, absolutely. The the Haytham and and, uh, Edward ones or the can't remember which ones. Was it the Lone Eagle, Devils of the Caribbean? Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. I forget. um, what the Ezio ones were called. So Helen Hibernia. Uh, Helen was Hibernia, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, that's actually probably a game I would walk, I would not do now that I think about it because it's too close, right? Like I studied a lot of Irish literature and history in university and I went to school in Ireland, a master's degree in Ireland. And I think coming out of that, I was like, oh, that'd be a great time period. But actually I think it's so close and so the some of the wounds are so raw still. I don't think it would be a benefit anyone to like, say oh ex, you know this historical person was a templar and this person was an assassin they, you'd ruffle ah. feathers you'd ruffle a lot of feathers if you made some hard and fast decisions about that so i think i'd so un- under that title were you, were you thinking of the irish war of independence in the sort of 1916 and so on Easter? i th- i think that my i think the idea was all of it it would have been the war for independence and the actual ensuing civil war gotcha. in 22 yeah. 23 yeah. um uh, yeah but yeah, Even I can't Irish be like politics. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's divided yeah. along those lines somewhat, isn't it? So exactly, exactly. Tricky. So, so you you working on these games for a long time. You really actually see how small, little, fun, fictional decisions you make. You're actually you're actually making a statement in some way uh, about you know history, and you're 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 saying, hey, we have a stance on this. Um, and so I think it's actually best to. The further you go back, go back, the more, the 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 less contentious it is. So there's a guy Dan Carlin who who has a podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he has a great podcast on uh, called Wrath of the Khans, which is about Genghis Khan. And he said, and he said, um, talking about Genghis Khan is a bit like that. Like Genghis Khan was like, was uh, you know, killed millions and millions of people. But you can kind of now with the with, you know, many hundreds of years since that time, you can say, oh, you know, like what were the not, I mean, I'll say positive and negative effects of Genghis Khan's um, rampage through uh, Asia and parts of Europe. But what what how did he affect history, you know, going forward? Yeah. And you'd be like, what? that sounds crazy. But, <laughs> you know, 500 years from now, you just sort of like, OK, here are the things that were set in motion as it were mm-hmm. it feels like then that lydia fry's sequence in world war one we've got um the chronicles game set i think in 1918 in russia that's pr- perhaps as far forward as you'd want to go while still retaining well, enough historical is, distance should we say yeah this is just i mean this is just my opinion by the way like i hmm. i don't uh, uh like it's it's actually just sort of private thoughts that i've had like maybe I would be, I'm sure there's somebody else would feel comfortable and have like an interesting way of doing a, doing a game set, you know, maybe set in world war two or something, uh, doing it in a way that I, you know, haven't thought about yet. 
Um, but it is just something that I think about as a writer. Um, uh, so yeah. But then I tend to not want black and white, you know, stories anyway. So, um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the issue. Like, if you if you are somebody who sees the assassins as unabashedly good, you know, good guys and the Templars as evil, then assigning <laughs> Templar and assassin roles to real historical figures becomes problematic because mm. um, mm. there's not too many purely good and purely evil people in history. I mean, I can think of a few, but <laughs> yeah. shades of grey are just more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Shall I? Um, I'll, I'll move on to our, our next question. And again, this this may be one that you can't answer, or perhaps would prefer not to. But I think it's important to ask it anyway. Um, do writers at, on on the Assassin's Creed team now have the freedom to create the protagonist they would like of any gender, race, color, etc.? Do we now have that? No, because I mean, it, it, I think that's a framing the question that way is is uh, is actually misleading. There's no one person, and there's not even a group. There's a there's the creation of all these things is a team effort, and so many things go into the creation of uh, of a, of a character and a time period. It's never, and you know, you might even say, oh, there's the creative director, but it's never even the creative director's decision to do these things. Typically, Ubisoft operates with, a, you know, a, a large number of people who get together and, and all kind of say, here's the kinds of things we'd like to do. Um, and, and it becomes a kind of a, a, a collaboration. And so no, no one person is, is saying, is calling the shots. So the, the results of that collaboration, I think, uh, I, I'd like to say, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more opportunity for the results of that collaboration to be more diverse. Uh, but it still has to come about through collaboration with the team because we try not to be, we try not to have any, you know, like um, auteurs on the team. We really try to be collaborative in the, the way we do things. Um, so you're always going to like, you know, I, I'm the quote unquote lead writer or narrative director of a, of a, of a number of games in this series, but I've very rarely been the guy that just unilaterally decides a thing. Um, on the level of dialogue. Yeah. Like I've written some cool lines of dialogue, but once you get above the lines of dialogue, you know, I'm, I'm not the one who's deciding, oh, this next game is about Edward Kenway or he's a pirate like that. That comes about through a long series of discussions and, and spitballing sessions about what kind of game we want to make. Um, so that was a rambling answer, but I don't no, know if it it's, it's also a, it, it's a very interesting answer. And very, just a very quick follow-up. So let's take Edward Kenway as an example. How long is the process from sort of blank whiteboard to final kind of character portrait or pen portrait that you say, okay, this is the yeah. guy we are writing? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll, I can tell you how Edward Kenway came about, right? So I'm sitting here finishing up Revelations. Um, Corey May is is in the deep in Assassin's Creed Three, um, and uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I finish up Revelations. I I uh, I'm you know I, Assassin's Creed Three is a year out or so, and um, 
some of the team comes to me, some producers come to me and say like, hey, uh, so uh, Darby, would you be interested in writing some DLCs for Assassin's Creed 3 uh, after it comes out? We're thinking because we're going to have this awesome ship technology um, in AC3 that it would be cool to do a pirate game. Um, and it just so happens that if we roll back the clock a bit, there's this character, uh, Connor, then there's this character, Haytham, and then the grandfather character, he would fit squarely in the golden age of piracy. Um, and it just so happens that Corey has named him Edward Kenway in uh, a database entry. That's all we know about him. Ah, um, interesting. Okay. And so would you like to do some DLC? So the first plan was sitting down, I think in, I think it was probably October, November of 2011 with a couple people on the creative team saying like, okay, what if we did DLCs for AC3 and they were a pirate themed, what would they look like? And we came up with this series of like six small sequences where you watch this character, Edward Kenway, grow up from age like 15 with um, Avery. Uh, and I think, what, what would that be? 16, like 98 or something like that. And he grows up and he, he and then he he becomes a pirate and you see him go from age you know 15 to like 30 into the golden age of piracy with Blackbeard and Hornigold and all that. Um, okay, that sounds great. So two for one or two months where we think, okay, it's gonna be DLCs, da 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 da. Um, I think I've told this story elsewhere, but it actually turned out because Alex Amancio was the creative director of Revelations, he Unbeknownst to us, he was actually making a plan to leave Ubisoft. But right before he did, he put together this presentation with some other people and he pitched to uh, editorial in Paris and he said, this shouldn't be DLCs. This should be a full game. Who doesn't want to play Pirates? Like, it should be a full game. So we get back from Christmas and Amancio, I believe he came to me and he said, I got the green light to make it a whole game. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> awesome. Also, I'm leaving Ubisoft. <laughs> oh my word. Uh, oh, so okay. Congrats. Now you've got a lot more work to do and yes, you, you, you'll be on your own. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, uh, yeah, yeah. And so we said, oh, well, thank you. That's a good parting gift. So he left, uh, you know, another team was assembled to, to pick up because a lot of people left. I think that happens. Um, and so, uh, and so that's that's how it came about. So okay, now you're in January of 2012, I guess, uh, or so, and you're thinking, okay, rethink this. If it's a full game, do we want to do what we just talked about for the DLC? And I'm actually not a fan of spanning too many years. Like I thought, the Ezio, you know, AC2 it spans like 28 years, but you know, the, the only aging Ezio does is he get, grows a goatee. So. I thought I'm not into that. So we picked the kind of like the coolest seven or eight years in the golden age of piracy. And we just made a, a story that kind of fit that. Is that right? It's about seven or eight years. I think. If, maybe if maybe it's a lot less. Our than friend that. of the show, White Wolf Whispers On, she would tell us straight away because she's yeah. the Black Flag expert. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I've just finished replaying and, and 100%ing Black Flag. And yeah. damn, that's a good game. <laughs> maybe it's even five years. Anyway, so point being, um, that that's the, that's the, it, so it came from two disparate things like, Hey, we've got this ship technology. Let's kind of further iterate on that. Plus here's this random character, you know, a no name character, Edward, uh, who's just happens to be, it's just kind of a name in a database. Uh, Haytham's father, there's a line about him taking Haytham to the, the, the opera. That's about it. Right. 
And in fact, he has a different, he has different color hair in the Assassin's Creed three book, right? Which is like a line that I've, that I don't think anyone read on the AC, the AC four team. So when it came to time to making him, they made him light brown hair, right? So, you know, ah, these details, these details yeah. just get missed, right? They, they get missed because you're thinking about so many other things that, you know, I always think we should have a resident, um, we should have a, a couple fans on the payroll just to like read through our stuff and be like, oh, on page 16 of uh, this novelization, you mentioned this. I'm like, oh, okay. Do we write I mean, on it or you, not? You know, people are going to be at tweeting you as soon as this episode goes out, offering their services. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, it's, um, isn't it George R.R. R. Martin that has a couple of sort of super fans that maybe cross check yeah. his, um, his, his chapters he's um, a, he, to he's, make sure that they are it's, consistent it's not a bad idea <laughs> yeah yeah I wouldn't, you, mind being, I wouldn't mind being on the payroll you know i run a podcast i do a lot of digging <laughs> but then see then you use you lose your editorial independence so that's I wouldn't, the thing I wouldn't and then you, you would have to sign an nda and i would have to do this on my <laughs> own and it would be terrible so yeah i'm yeah I, I i highly value this is me speaking personally but i highly value the editorial independence of a lot of our fans. Cause I think that that's, you know, if you're a true artist or, you know, of any kind, you want, you want brutal and honest feedback to help you make better, to help you be better, make better work. And so, you know, I, I you know, podcasts like this are important. Guys like access, the animus are important or out, I should say organizations <laughs> like access, the animus, um, are important because they they uh, they are are the best kind of fans, right? The, the, the hold our feet to the fire, but also mm-hmm. celebrate the work when it's celebrate the work when it's good, and scratch their heads when it's uh, you know um, questionable. Indeed. <laughs> I guess. Indeed. Yeah. The only problem I have with that is <clears throat> I will always be honest about anything assassin's creed but as soon as it comes to mythology i'm a little bit too biased you know i spent all last year reading neil gaiman's mythology mm-hmm. norse mythology yeah yeah just to play the asgard and jotunheim arcs just because i wanted to see how close it was and it was brilliant yeah and knowing that <laughs> myth as you play asgard was a little bit sweeter because you knew what yeah was coming. that's the first book i read on on uh on the mythology. Um, so the question I have is also from White Wolf Whispers. She reached out to me and it's a good question because Black Flag is one of the in- most innovative games of the franchise because Edward is a Greyary. He's not an assassin. He's not a Templar. His actions at the start are a bit Templary, but then he becomes a bit more assassin <clears throat> Sorry. So she would like to know, at what point in Black Flag does Edward actually become an assassin? Is it after he escapes the prison and he gets his robes handed to him? Is it sometime after the rock bottom scene? Or <laughs> is it by the time he actually re- reaches Atabai and he tells him what nothing is true and everything is permitted means? So where would we say that Edward becomes the assassin? Well, I don't know. I think I think that's a, that's a good question. I think... I think this you could ask the same of like anyone who um, converts to a new religion, right? Like there are there are ceremonial uh, thresholds or that you can pass, but but maybe the there is also like 
what steps do your what steps do you take in your thinking to slowly come over to that? I don't know that there's a hard and fast um, place where he becomes an assassin in his mind. Um, I think he gradually grows into it. But I presume actually he officially becomes an assassin when he goes back to uh, London and probably does take some ceremony, you know, just like Ezio um, uh, does at the top of the tower in AC2 or, or the ceremony that he officiates with uh, it's with his sister, right? And those are the thresholds. Or it's, it, it's kind of like when you say, like, when did I fall in love with my wife? Well, that was gradually, right? But then there was a time where I got married and I put on the ring. Um I think being a being an assassin is is a philosophical mindset, and there is a an official moment, but I think really it's that was why I, that was the whole point of the story in, in Assassin's Creed Four is to say, what is the process of somebody gradually coming to believe in these things? Because I was seeing a kind of a a sad trend where people were calling assassins. We're thinking of assassins, assassins as a bloodline. I wanted to be very clear that the important part of assassins, being an assassin, is that you you adopt it, you adopt these ideas of your own free will. If you were to actually say that, um, oh, being an assassin is a bloodline, well, that's actually a, a Templar way of looking at the world. Like there are people who are essentially better than other people, uh, and so I was really trying to make that clear in the story. And since that wasn't clear enough, I put those I put those Desmond logs in Valhalla to make it even clearer. <laughs> As a follow up to that, would that mean then hypothetically, and it's something I've thought of a lot since uh, Black since actually Black Flag and Assassin's Creed Three, because I still argue that technically Connor never got a proper ceremony, so he's not a assassin in ceremony but he's an assassin philosophically because he joins the he does you know join the Achilles but his mindset is in the same flow yeah is it then possible <laughs> that even if a story like Eivor um who she does in my opinion when you play the story follow in the lines of an assassin you know she doesn't go out and hurt innocent she does kind of seek that freedom she even like battles against her own Mm-hmm. order which is destiny she is then philosophically an assassin you don't just need that big title would that be right in saying uh, perhaps i think there's two ways of thinking about it one would be that i mean there's a there's a kind of a saying like when people split hairs against the definition of like oh but you know so and so actually there's a there's the whole new no true scotsman philosophical argument right have you heard that before no, no, go ahead. I have, yes. <laughs> yes. So so tell me if I'm tell me if I'm right. But it's basically like there's a guy there's a guy in uh let's say in in um in Inverness sitting around reading a paper and uh he sees that uh uh someone in the paper has been accused of a heinous crime and and uh and uh the guy's got the last name like McLeod or something like that. And the guy reading the paper says, Oh well oh no, no, sorry, he doesn't see his last name yet, and he says, Oh well no no Scotsman would ever commit a crime that heinous. But then he reads down lower and it says, oh, the guy's name is McLeod. He says, well, no true Scotsman would do that. And ah. like, it's one of the things about video games and fantasy worlds in general. We tend to be really, really um, monolithic about things. Like an assassin is an assassin. But I think in all games that I've tried to write and, and all 
you know, the ways that I've tried to tell these stories. I think a, an assassin is just somebody who says they're an assassin and tries in some way to uh, push forward the, the creed in the way that they understand it. Now, what that means is most assassins are going to look fairly similar. But you, you see even in like a game like Unity that there's assassins who have a lot slightly different interpretations of what it means to be an assassin and what the, the goals of an assassin should be. And I think, I think if you were to really honestly talk about assassins and Templars as competing philosophies, you have to also admit that there is no one way to be an assassin and there's no one way to be a Templar. And that um, over time, these ideas will morph and change a little bit. And they'll, they'll probably keep some features. Um, but as you see, like, you know, with the history of, of uh, religions, right, these things morph and change too. In the history of philosophy, philosophies change. And you can never pin things, these things down very well. And so really an, uh, an assassin is somebody who says they're an assassin. And so in that sense, Eivor is not an assassin because uh, she says she's not. Um, she might actually have a lot of uh, similar um, viewpoints, but she is not somebody who has said, oh, I want to fight for the liberty of all mankind um, and fight to you know lift shackles off people. She's somebody who says, I want to fight for my people and the, and the culture that I understand. And I admire... Um, Haytham for that, for what he's doing, but I, I don't think she sort of sees her um, remit as as large as he does, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can understand it. It, it. The way you describe it actually kind of opens up my eyes to the franchise a bit more and sees how fluid this all could be for the philosophy, and it's kind of interesting to see how it could go. Um, is it ever possible then to mentally put, because it's something I've just been thinking about, recently but i try and stay away from the whole bodlek assassin vs templars are just the people is it ever possible to look at some like an outside battle for example i'm looking now odin and loki and philosophically feel that their behavior is mirroring what an assassin vs mm. templar conflict would look mm. like because odin's that very much order no chaos let's start everything out something that templars could do in an era it's not always the same whereas loki is a bit bit more like hey let's be more freedom i want to do what i want to do mm -hmm. and sometimes you do have that mentality to look at that's kind of what a philosophy of an assassin versus templar conflict would look like not word for word no but yeah yeah well i think i think if any philosophy is useful in life it it applies to a large number of situations but the philosophy is never going to be the uh, the natural law, if that makes sense. Like e even like take a, like a, a like a new Newtonian law, like force equals mass times acceleration. That's actually just our best description of what's going on. That's like a shorthand for what's going on under the hood of the universe, right? It's but it's it's only a, a useful formula for covering a large number of cases. And I think the same way of any kind of good philosophy, like um, when you describe the assassin's viewpoint, you're just trying to describe a general trend in society of, um, I look at it as authoritarian versus uh, 
libertarian, right? Not American libertarianism, but like if you look at the political compass, right versus left and authority versus liberty, I see the Assassin Templar conflict as on a spectrum of the authority versus liberty. There are people who are mm. more authoritarian in, in, in terms of like, we need to impose strictures on people so that we can have an ordered society versus liberty, which is we need to lift shackles off people so they can feel free to express themselves and live their life the way. If, if you express it in that way, you can, you can see the positives and negatives of both, right? Order tends to mean safety and uh, lack of uh, surprises, but it also can mean opp oppression. So it can mean stability, but it can also mean oppression. And t the extreme end of liberty can mean um, lack of oppression, freedom, but it can lead to chaos. It's not that <laughs> it's not that assassins would fight for chaos, but it can be a knock-on effect of excessive liberty, right? Because if everyone's free to do what they want to do, that can be a, a result. So you see these two poles and you say there are these, you can see why somebody would want order and you could see why somebody would want freedom. And excesses of both can lead to positives and negative things. Um, and so the assassin way of looking at the world is a description of a certain set of um, viewpoints. So when you say like oh, Odin might represent Templars and Loki might represent assassins, I don't think that it's it's like black and white, like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we were thinking. But it's more that Loki represents certain types of behaviors that kind of fit on that spectrum of things. And Odin would represent things on that spectrum. Um, but I don't know that it means that it divides so cleanly into Assassin and Templar. But it, it, it certainly is like a useful description of the world sometimes. But then as I read history and as I do a lot of research for things, that's actually the thing I run into the most is like, wow, the Assassin Templar conflict does not break cleanly in, you know, in this period of history, uh, like really hard to be like cleanly map how we think of the fictional assassins onto actual history. If that makes sense. It does. It it just makes ultimately for more interesting storytelling. Yes, you know, and that's ultimately if, if it, yeah. If it was black and white, then where's where's the interest? Where's the yeah. debate? Where's yeah. the where's the follow-on stories or the reinterpretation yeah. of previous stories? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's the grayness that I think spurs all the ongoing yeah. discussions on Reddit and Discord and Twitter and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, sometimes calling it gray makes you feel like you're you're copping out, but it it's it's definitely like. It's more that how about shades of meaning? <laughs> well, yeah, it's just overlapping. I don't know. I'm sure some historian has has really like expertly clarified this, but um, but yeah, I mean, like, we can see use shades of gray still. But it's more that the more you really get into history, the more that you dedicate yourself. And I'm sure lots of Assassin's Creed fans have had this. Where let's say let's say they play a game like Valhalla or Origins or or you know, Black Flag. And they go, oh, man, I'm really interested in this era. Let me go read about it. I think you'll find that reading about it brings you even more um, nuance than playing the game, right? The games, we, we have to make decisions. We have to take shortcuts and things. I've, I've read no end to articles that tell me, you know, a game that I've worked on has, oh, you've oversimplified the, the pirate conflict. You've, 
you've you've yeah you've uh, you're c- going to contribute to uh, to uh, uh, a bad discourse about this uh, this period of history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't actually don't disagree. Like I don't. Th- there are so many millions of things I wish we could say in the games that actually are difficult to get across when when you're trying to make a game. Um, but I do. My my ultimate joy is that people, when they play an Assassin's Creed game, if you go then and pick up a book about the history of that time period, that's the most joy I can actually take from this, uh, from from having made this game. Not did you like you know. Um, this one line of dialogue you know, that I happen to have written. I, I really would love that these games are gateways into deeper learning and, and curiosity um, about the world we live in. Yeah, we we had, we had a really good discussion just a couple of weeks ago on this topic with uh, with two guests, um, two Egyptologists, um, Amit and uh, Dr. Brianna Jackson. Mm-hmm. The, the topic was teaching through gaming, and you yeah. know. Yes, the word historical accuracy is is oh, I hate that phrase. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's it's used to to beat games up. You know they are entertainment, but if they open your mind and inspire you to go and learn more, sure, this character might be not quite <clears throat> right, or this texture on this vase might be not quite right for the time period. But did it open your mind? Did it inspire yeah. you? That's that's great. Yeah, a great a great example of this that I see you know, uh, fair with some frequency on the subreddit is that a lot of people think um, when they look at England and how we represented the Roman ruins in the Roman past, they find it sort of comically overblown, right? Which is, which is true. Like it's, there were the, the aqueducts that we have are, are just massive, right? But th- the kind of historical accuracy in that sense was not actually the point. The point was to, as you, a player in the ninth century um, uh, early Middle Ages, uh, often called the Dark Ages, not because they were uh, not dark morally, but dark because we don't have a historical record. There's just mm. nothing to read. That's why it's called dark. But people have moved away from that phrase. But the idea was to, as a player, as you wander through this landscape, to give you an immediate sensory feeling of like, oh my God, I'm walking on the sh- the broken husk of a previous civilization. And we couldn't have achieved that with just a few historically accurate um, Roman ruins and, and that's it, right? We wanted to make you feel as often as possible like you are in a time period that's built upon the ruins of a once massive civilization. And so it's, it's an artistic interpretation and it's a romantic notion, let's say. Um, but I think, it did, I think it did its job. And I remember seeing a, um, a really insightful post called uh, on the subreddit maybe six months ago or maybe even more. Time just passes. But um, that said, basically, um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla is a post-apocalyptic game. And that's totally it. Like we didn't, we didn't use <laughs> that's those. Great. I've never yeah, heard that before, but yeah. that's great. We didn't use that word specifically, but that was exactly our intention when we were building the historical layers of this game. We were saying, and that's, you know, that's what I, I spent a lot of time putting the, uh, the, the, the assassin dens together, right? The, the, the six assassin dens that you can find throughout England. It's, I want you to feel that there was a lot of activity going on and there was a, there was a kind of a height to this civilization. And then the assassins themselves are somewhat complicit in its downfall, or at least it's rapidly falling apart, right? And because they assassinated too many people too quickly, 
and it, they lost some of the structure and order. Was there a balance they could have achieved? Was there no good answer? Who knows? But the idea was to feel that as you move through this landscape, you feel, oh my God, like hundreds of years ago, there were, there were a, a there was a different culture here that, that you know, they knew how to build these gigantic towers. And that's why, like, for instance, like, I think it's Stowe, who when you first go to London says like, oh, yeah, the built by giants or, or maybe yes. it's Eivor that says this place was built by giants. And that's what they, that's what they believe. They, they literally, the historical memory of four or 500 years is when you don't have written records and, 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 you know, YouTube and movies to watch and from a time gone by, you're just like, who built this? Like, what kind of, what manner of creature built these crazy, crazy things? And so we wanted to give you that feeling as a, in a sensory way, not, and not just in like a line of dialogue. Right. Mm. And so that's, 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 yes, it's historically inaccurate, but the feeling is what we wanted to give you is what we wanted to transmit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll just say on the aqueduct point, yes, that there weren't, uh, you know, they, they may have been slightly ahistorical, but I, I always liked the fact that they kind of, they connected the, the ones in England connected kind what's the right word poetically with origins. Cause in origins we have that yeah, vast exactly. being constructed <clears throat> fast forward 800 and 900 years. And we have these vast aqueducts in ruins. And yeah, I think yeah. that's nice. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It would have been a it, story. I, I, I thought afterwards, like when I saw that, uh, when I read that Reddit post, I thought, Oh, it would have been interesting if it, if origins had been, the rise of the Roman Republic in some sense, like if Octavian had been in there, uh, rise of the Roman Empire, sorry. Um, and then go forward to like, you know, right smack in the height of the Roman Empire. And then, yeah, Valhalla would have been like the death of it, right? Like, oh, here's mm. the crumbling ruins of it. That would have been an interesting triptych. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we ever thought about it until, you know, after well under, after Valhalla was well underway, but that would have been, that would have been interesting. We could have like planned, you know, ahead for kind of some thematic overtones, but, but you're right. Like, uh, at least with origins and Valhalla, there's a, there's a, there's a bookend where the, the Roman empire existed in the middle there somewhere. I mean, the nice thing about Assassin's Creed is as long as the modern day is, you know, um, consistent, you can jump back to yeah. the, the height of the Roman empire or the birth of the Roman empire at some point in the future. And a lot of people would love to see it. You know yeah. that, <laughs> indeed. I want, I want, I want to um, jump to to another question, if I may. Um, so it was reported in, um, I think it was in the end of year financial results um, for Ubisoft that Valhalla had passed uh, one billion dollars in revenue, which is a phenomenal um, sum. And it, it made me wonder, from from your point of view as as the member of the writing team, um, as a member of the creative team, how do you measure your own success? Is it the revenue? <laughs> is it player engagement is it critics reviews <laughs> it's funny my uh my uh my sister-in-law was actually asking that exact question like two days ago i promise um, you didn't tell me to ask it it's fine yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um for me personally i uh, i'm just somebody who wants to do better than i did last time you, you know anyone who's dug into any assassin's creed uh, games and knows the sort of references i sprinkle throughout there that i'm a very very big fan of orson wells um and uh he said one time on dick cabot like late in his career i think in the 70s sometime 
they said, what's your, uh, what's the, what's the best movie you ever made? And he goes, the one I'm working on right now. And <laughs> yeah, what, what he meant obviously is that as an artist, you just like, uh, there's a story of how he would like introduce a movie and after he'd edited it and he'd introduce it and then he'd walk out the door and never watch it or think about it again. And I kind of have that same feeling where as a, as somebody with an artistic temperament, I work very, very hard to make something and pour everything I can into it. But as soon as it's in a box, I'm just thinking about the next thing. Um, and so I, it's very hard for me to, I do get a deep satisfaction that other people are enjoying the, the game and, and it's very, very flattering when people will quote like their favorite lines and, and it'll be something that I've written. But it's not it's not the thing that drives me. I just have my own good, I think, finely honed sense of satisfaction of like, I just want to do better next time. I have ideas that I didn't get to do on the last one that I'd like to do on the next one. I'd like to achieve, you know, different or better or more interesting things or... So it just comes from being an endlessly curious person and wanting to, wanting to just keep going forward. Um, so that's a very hard question. I do, of course, I do appreciate the fans deeply, though, and it's very, very humbling to be like, to have people, you know, tell me they love this. But it's also really interesting to hear people say they really didn't like something, and that's also interesting too, and to see where people come from. I always kind of get the sense that. You know, I'm 46, and um, I have I've been making these games for a long time, writing in this universe for a long time, and I have a certain taste in you know books and storytelling that doesn't always match with the audience that I'm writing for, um, and I I tend to write in a certain way, and I tend to love you know like hey okay like the 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 truth is that if someone said. Darby, you can either write a game that sounds like Shakespeare or you can write it sound like the next Marvel uh, extended universe uh, movie. I'd be like Shakespeare all the way. Like if that means that the audience is shrinks because they are like, what's all this Shakespeare? <laughs> That's fine with me because it would be, I, I would try my hardest to make it the most interesting thing you'd ever heard. But it's, be, but I, it's because I really would want to hear that. <laughs> You know, uh, I actually, I actually was, there's, there's I, law there. Queen Elizabeth was restored to the throne with the help of the assassins. Her orb was, yeah, yeah. so it's the pieces are there. Well, this, this is something, this is something not a lot of people know. And I don't know if I could ever, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get permission to release it sometime, but I wrote the original casting scripts for origins in, in blank verse. And, um, and I wrote these, I really had fun writing monologues for Cleopatra and uh, Aya and Bayek in blank verse. And it, it, was a, it was a thought at the back of my head, like, could I write the whole game like this? Or at least, you know, the nobility talks like this. The idea would have been, I guess, to write all Greek speakers in iambic pentameter and all Egyptian speakers in prose, because then you would at least have a stylistic difference of like when, when the Egyptians were talking Egyptians to each other and when the Greeks were talking the lingua franca of the Roman Empire, Greek. So then at least, okay, yeah, they're all speaking English technically in the game, but you can tell what they're supposed to be. You know, the animus translates it slightly differently into different styles. And so I had this amazing fun writing in blank verse. Maybe I'll ask, maybe I'll ask uh, permission from Ubisoft PR to 
just like release the casting scripts. They don't appear anywhere in the game because it was really early stuff that I just wrote. You know, we had to cast people before the, you know, the scripts were even a, a whisper in someone's ear. But it was super fun. Um, and so anyway, so long story short, I, I, I make these games because they're fun artistic challenges as much as I want to um, entertain other people. And I think the best way that I can do that is by me following what I find interesting, at least, you know, in my little arena. I, I don't make the games myself. I, there's a huge team. But when I get me or my writers together, we get excited about writing ideas and um, we want to push it as, uh, you know, in different directions. And ideally, you know, there's not a lot of stylistic variety in, in game writing. We're starting to see some. Like, I loved Disco Elysium. Uh, it has some of the most unique, chewy writing in all of games. It's so good. And I, it's a, a style that I deeply, deeply respect and would love to do, attempt myself. But it just doesn't fit with Assassin's Creed. Um, it's a kind of a hard-boiled, noir kind of speculative craziness. Um, so I'm always looking for those places. Like, where can I do something that interests me? Because if it, I'm interested and passionate that passion is hopefully going to rub off on a lot of our audience. But maybe also, you know, I'm at an age and I have a style that, you know, other people would find a little bit like, oh, that's, that's a little, he's a little full of himself. Or <laughs> um, Before I try and sneak in one more question, I will say, if there's any Shakespearean style writing in Assassin's Creed, I'm going to be all for it. One of my <laughs> favorite book, well, plays by his is Romeo and Juliet. Macbeth is pretty good, but I think what's the other one? Tempest. Tempest is one of the mm -hmm. good ones as well. So if there's any hint of Shakespeare writing, I will lap it up. I love Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm I'm a wee, I'm strange. I'm, <laughs> I was probably one of the only kids in my school that when everyone's like, let's read Romeo and Juliet, the whole class of thirty would go, oh, I'm like, yay! I've just read it. I'll read it again. <laughs> Yeah. I can tell you, Declan, just for balance, I was the kid who hated Shakespeare and was much happier reading my Cold War spy novels and stuff like that. So <laughs> let's let's see. Yeah. So the question <laughs> I asked, and I know I probably on my personal Twitter account probably added you a few many times, and I did get one theory right. What was your favourite Assassin's Creed Valhalla theory on the lead up to the game being released? Because I know. One of the tweets I put out is I mentioned Rebecca and Sean was going to be in the game, so I was quite impressed that in July I hinted that Layla was going to meet Rebecca and Sean. Was there any other theories you found before Valhalla released that you really liked? Any theories? Uh... Yes, because everyone was just speculating like crazy. <laughs> Twitter yeah, was mad. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'd always... <laughs> Spoiler, I'd always liked the uh, people. People would always kind of go really extreme with this, which is like, "Oh, is Desmond still alive or not?" And I was like, "Well, yes and no." <laughs> like, what does um, it mean to be alive? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, our virus is alive. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. Our digital entities alive. Yeah. So that was a that was a fun one, and I was trying to, at some points, mislead people into. Get, you know, sometimes fun to poke poke the hornet's nest just to see what people think. But um, I, I get the impression that you do enjoy a little um, cryptic <laughs> response every now and then. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. 
Twitter. I remember, what is it, Charlie Brooker? Is he the guy that writes Black Mirror? Someone asked mm. him, what's the best mm. video game in the last 10 years? And he said, Twitter. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think that was him. But I was like, yeah, it's true. It's like, it's the best mass- massively MMO. It's the best MMO ever made. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was a good one. Um, uh, and, yeah, I don't remember any. Like, I'm just... It was a long time ago, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, we're, we're 18, hang on, where are we? We're March 20, we're 18 months after. So very quick kind of process question. So game was released to the public November. I would assume that the writing has to be done kind of upfront so that the, the recording, the animation, everything else can be done. But, but are, are the writing team still actively contributing up to sort of final QA and going gold, or do they start to move on to other projects <clears throat> long before release? Uh, it depends. Um, I mean, I stayed on the project all the way up until release, and so I'm always there to, mm. um, you know, it depends on, uh, things get done in a, diff- a specific order, right? Like there's, an, a, there's a tremendous amount of audio recording to do for a game like Valhalla, so you really need the, the, the scripts done fairly early. Um, luckily, we had written... M- I'd say 90% of the game before COVID hit. So that was good. COVID did make figuring out how to record dialogue a little bit uh, difficult, but we ended up like for our leads, like um, Cecily and uh, Magnus, we built recording studios in their houses so they didn't have to leave. Oh, wow. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, and because they have the bulk of the dialogue. So we found quick solutions, but um, uh yeah, like I think some writers, you know, as soon as they're done with their territories, for instance, they leave. But we always keep a, you know, a, a crew of, of a couple talented people around um, to always be ready to respond to any anything that needs to be changed, you know. But generally, we're, we're finished. Games are typically done, done, I'd say four to eight weeks before they actually get released. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, with patching, you can keep working on patches and updating stuff. And um, but um, in order for the it's a the whole manufacturing process, right? You gotta you gotta get the game to people, and they gotta stamp the disc and put it in a little box and get it on the shelf. So games have to be done a certain amount of time. So I think generally you can be sure, like if your favorite game is like I'm playing Elden Ring right now, I'm sure Elden Ring was was done in January, uh, right? January first just they were just testing it and writing doing that patch right um or even december probably um but uh and of course we have a we have an extended experience where we're constantly updating the game with new stuff so there's still writers on the team um uh doing their thing um yeah it's hard i mean games of this size there's a lot of overlapping schedules i'm sure i'm sure i've said something in here where (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where the PR team's going to be like, eh, snip that part, and you know, don't, don't, don't show our secret sauce of how we work. But we'll see. I think, I think anyone with a brain would probably guess that you know <laughs> yeah. the, the the writing and audio recording has to be done fairly early, or, yeah. or in parallel with you know AI and programming yeah, yeah. and asset generation and yeah. all the rest of it. But yeah. uh, it, there's especially with the dual protagonist thing like yes. you 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 add it even more on top of that there's just only a certain amount you know you have to actually rent recording studios and there are you can't have two people on the same mic at the same time so you need separate rooms right so um but uh 
you know, that's just logistics that you work out ahead of time. And, and we have a super experienced team. So if you say, hey, we have X number of lines in this game, you know, the audio team goes, okay, that's going to mean uh, we need X number of weeks to record this game. And we do have a very experienced team here. So we came up with a schedule, you know, two years out. We're like, okay, if this game is going to be, have this many scenes and this many lines, we can estimate this many things. And actually they give us a budget. They say, please try not to go over this many lines, you know. So we kind of allocate like, okay, you know, each territory, you know, each shire, let's say, should we should, let's not go over this number of lines because then you're going to be stealing from another territory, et cetera. It's all that must be the, 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 but, uh, To be honest, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, a nerd. I find the yeah. project management side rather interesting. And that must be the, I guess you learn through experience. It's the writing isn't just purely creative. You do have to balance off what is engaging gameplay how much time do we have on screen in the volume in the audio booth you know um how many people can we have on screen at once and animate them so there must be a lot of different um, right, yeah. constraints to, exactly. to balance exactly um, i think it's fascinating yeah constraints are actually f- fantastic uh, because you mm. really need, you really need to know the size of the size of the house you live in before you start buying the paint to paint it and the the, the furniture to to you know to outfit it right if you if if it's like oh i'm gonna buy a house it could be a thousand square feet it could be five thousand square feet who knows you're like no give me some give me some measurements so i know how to fill it so yeah i wonder if i might ask i I know we are probably approaching out of time now so let us know if you one more question let's say one more question yeah sure Declan, do you want to ask the final question and then we'll wrap up um yes i do have an interesting one and now I do want to say that this is purely theory-based. Um, if you, I know you write the narratives and there's all that idea stuff, but if you, do you have actually have any AC theories that you would not explore in the games? Just any random <laughs> theories? <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um. No, I mean, no, I'm. I think I'm going to disappoint you with that question. I don't. I don't have because I think mainly because I think I'm always looking for fresh ground, right? So like, I want the next time period that I work on to be like really fresh and so you know surprising. And I feel like, um, from a fan point of view, a lot of fans are like, oh, I want these things wrapped up. I want to see where this goes which is a very important. And we tried to do a lot of that in Valhalla, but I did, we didn't set out to do that. Um, it was more that as we delved into the time period of Valhalla, I always just made notes of, oh, you know what? I think I could dive back into this here. I think I could get uh, the Adam and Eve thing and the, okay, I think I could do that. But it's like, I discover those things as I'm painting, uh, prepping the canvas as it were. So for me, I think, you know, any new time periods that I work on, those things will probably make themselves known to me. But I really start from a point of view of freshness, like let, how do I make, how do I make this next story the freshest thing possible so that people, you know, like people didn't see pirates coming and yet we made a really fantastic pirate game that fit really well into the AC universe. And I like doing that sort of, I like... I like giving people what they didn't even know they wanted. 
think. Mm. And then, but then in retrospect, it's like, of course, of course, the Assassin's Creed can be bigger than just that thing that we thought. Because I think everyone, fans, their usual frame of reference is the last game they loved, right? Like, oh, more of that, please. Give me more of that. Give me more of that feeling. And I'm, it's the same. I'm the same way with a, you know, a band I like. Like, oh, I love Radiohead. I loved, you know, Kid A and 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 um, in Rainbows and OK Computer. Let's listen to this Moon Shape Pool. Whoa, it's nothing like their past stuff, but it retains that spirit that makes Radiohead so good. So I love it. Um, and that's a very intangible thing to achieve, right? Um, you're not always so lucky. Not every not every band is Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I'm hearing is it sounds like Jazz Age Junkies is coming. You got me. No. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Where would it be set? Should it be in New Orleans or should it be in I mean, Chicago? New Orleans, or you know, references to Avril. Should it be just a, an adaptation <laughs> of The Great Gatsby? Maybe it's just Assassin's Gatsby. Who ah. knows? Uh, Assassin's Gatsby, I'm sold. Literally, I'm sold. The three city, here it is. The three cities are yeah, are Manhattan, uh, Chicago, and New Orleans. There you go. Damn. Jazz I, age. Right. I would say Chicago <laughs> would work. Really I'm, I'm well. just going to say one thing. Right, we've made this joke already, but um, uh, when Clemence Nogrix was was interviewed on uh, the Sisterhood Speaks uh, podcast a few weeks ago, she did say that the the many fan arts of Avril and Cassandra helped to kind of inspire the crossover writers and the crossover yeah, yeah. team. So send your Jazz A Junkies fan <laughs> arts to Twitter, oh, and yeah. uh, let's make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I'm just really, in, I'm just really want to see what the the costumes are like because that's going to be. Oh good. God. Yes. Yeah. Maybe there's a hidden blade in someone's trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a modern version of, of Aveline's uh, blowpipe. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I think it's funny because I'm just one of these assassin fans and I, it's hard to explain because people don't understand it, but I just will play anything Assassin's Creed because the stories <laughs> are always so fun. So if someone says, hey, this is in the Jazz Age and you get this trumpet that's secretly a poison blow dart, <laughs> I wouldn't care, well, but cool. I, I, will, I will say that I think after working on this series for a long time, I think one of the one of the um one of the secrets in the let's say Assassin's Creed DNA, if you will, uh, is that it's a it's a franchise that, much like a lot of the best franchises, allows the audience to participate in the creation of future content, even if it's only in your mind, right? So this idea that um it's a series that by Assassin's Creed 2, suddenly the fans are like, oh my gosh, this could go anywhere. And we could meet any historical character. And the costumes could look, it could be evocative that that time period. So now you don't even need Ubisoft to give you the new games. There were, there were art fan arts of Viking assassins years ago before Valhalla. And fan arts of, oh, what would, you know, uh, um, in, you know, uh, dynastic china look like and what would the, you know all these and the mongolians and all this like and it's so i think that's one of the strengths of it is and that's why it captures people is you as a fan get to participate in it and speculate far into the future it's, it's something that kind of gta like had always you're like oh where's the next city gonna be and, and just that's part of the fun of speculating and you have to of course you have to wait many many years for new G gta <laughs> games <laughs> Yes. I, I have no idea where the next one would go. What if they pull a fast one and go back to New York for a third time? <laughs> like, who knows? But we'll see. 
I will admit, if I knew how to draw, all Ubisoft would be spanned is fan art of Isu riding dinosaurs because it's still <laughs> in my head that Isus I lived think, longer than the same no, did. I think you could do you could do saber tooth tigers and woolly woolly Ooh. mammoths, but I don't think Armored dinosaurs. Mammoths. I don't think because yeah. the, uh, the 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 meteor <laughs> that hit the dinosaurs is not the does not coincide with the Toba catastrophe. <laughs> but you saw a little bit earlier tigers. Yeah. I just saber tooth tigers imagine... though that works that works i think the Can last we... the last smilodon was probably 20 30,000 years ago right Maybe so 40. Um, i am now imagining a he-man isu sitting on top of a snake <laughs> tiger that's it. it's canon in my head there is an isu out there that rides a pet saber tooth tiger it's canon in my head and it's staying man if if this were a visual podcast that would be a final good parting image <laughs> Absolutely. The three of us riding off in Isu gear on a Smilodon. <laughs> Let's do that. Okay. So, fan, fan, someone in the fan base, oh do, my God. do that, please. <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see that. There we go. Me and Declan yep. and James on three Smilodons in, with, Isu, with Swords of Eden. How about oh, that? Do it. Do it. I want to see this so bad. This would be perfect. Oh, but I do need to be. I have one request. I do need to be in Arno's robes. Thank you very much. There we okay. <laughs> All right, Declan. I think we need to wrap up the show. <laughs> so great pleasure having you, board, Darby. I hope I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Definitely, it's always fun to to, to just you know spin yarns with AC fans. It's been great. Yeah. And- so if anybody is going to do us all a solid and draw three of us on Smilodons and Instant Gear, <laughs> you can at Darby or you can at us at AC Let's Talk or James at James Teleliquid. I really need to get this image out of my head. I'm just stuck in my mind. <laughs> um, you can also email us about your uh, any topic requests. If you've enjoyed the show at Assassin's Creed Let's Talk at gmail.com. And we'll see you all next week. See you soon. Take care, everyone.